Oh, great and glorious God, we join with all creation in your praise and worship. We join with the saints who have gone before us, the angels who surround your throne, the living creatures and all the elders, and we say glory and honor and blessing and praise and worship belongs to you, our God. We gather as the people of God to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who by his blood has purchased men for God from every nation and language and people and tribe under heaven. And so to him alone belongs worship and praise and glory and blessing and thanks. We are so privileged that we have been invited into your presence and that the Lord Jesus has opened a way for us to do so so that we can come not only without cowering, but that we can come with confidence and know that you will receive us and that our worship to you will be acceptable because it is offered in the name of your only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the great author, the great founder of our salvation. And we pray, our God, that as we gather together, that you would gather with us as you have promised. When you brought your people Israel out of Egypt, you gathered them around Mount Sinai and you came down and visited them. And we pray that you would visit us this morning by your Holy Spirit and that you would do your work amongst us, that you would glorify your name through us and that you would refresh and encourage us as we hear the word preached and as we taste it and touch it and smell it in the sacrament of the Holy Supper. We confess our own weakness and our dependence upon you for all things. And so we pray, our God, for your gracious presence amongst us so that we might leave from this place confident that we have been in the presence of our great God and that we go with renewed energy to live our day-to-day lives, not for ourselves, but for your glory and praise. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Let us turn in the Word of God this morning to the letter of Hebrews. You'll find that on page 1276 in the Pew Bibles, Hebrews chapter 2, beginning at verse 10 and reading to the end of 15. This evening, God willing, we'll be looking at the following verses. So it's a two-part series on the incarnation of our Lord Jesus and uh, his taking to himself our flesh and blood. So let's uh, begin reading at verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 2. For it was fitting that he, for whom... And by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, 
Behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's the reading of God's word. Let's ask for a blessing upon the preaching. Oh, gracious God, we thank you that you have spoken to us in your word, and we pray that as we open up your word, you would open us up to it, that you would open our eyes, that we might see wondrous things in your law, and that we would see the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, it is that time of year when our thoughts turn to the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the time of year when we celebrate his coming into the world, his birth at Bethlehem as a little child. And this morning we want to turn our attention to the incarnation, the enfleshment of the Son of God as it comes to us from Hebrews chapter 2. Here the writer to the Hebrews tells uh, the readers of the greatness of the Lord Jesus. You might remember the backdrop to the letter to the Hebrews is that these are, this, these le- this letter is written to Christians who had confessed the Lord Jesus Christ but were now facing pressure from their fellow Jews to turn their back on Christ and to go back to the former way of worship. And so the letter to the Hebrews is one long sustained letter telling them how great and glorious the Lord Jesus Christ is and how he is superior to all other forms of worship. He's greater than the sacrifices. He's greater than the uh, the priests of the Old Testament. He's greater than the angels. And the idea is to focus the attention of the readers on the Lord Jesus Christ so that they might grasp him and never let him go. And that's what the Lord wants for us as well this morning, that we might understand the Lord Jesus in all of his magnificence, that celebrating his birth would not be something sentimental, but that it would be soul invigorating as we understand the great depths to which our Lord Jesus has gone in order to be our Redeemer. So let's look at this passage Together, first of all, the reason for the incarnation, then the incarnation itself, and then the result of the incarnation. Why did God become man? Well, we're given that in the first verses, in verse 10 of our text. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So the reason that the Lord Jesus became man was in order that God's design to bring many sons to glory might be realized. You'll notice how uh, the writer to the Hebrews talks about the greatness and magnificence of God. He's the one for whom and by whom all things are. So God is the great creator who called all things into existence And he created all things for his own glory. So that he is the one by whom all things were made 
and the one for whom all things were made. And this includes humanity. So God placed Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden in order that they would live for his praise and honor. And more than that, God's design was that Adam and Eve would push out the boundaries of the Garden of Eden so that one day the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover the whole earth, even as waters cover the sea. So humanity was placed in the garden for the praise and adoration and glory of God. But you know how things went. Adam and Eve rebelled against God. Instead of giving themselves over to the service and worship of God, they wanted to become like God. That was the temptation that Eve succumbed to. In the day that you eat, God knows that you will become like him. And she thought that was a great thing. And she took of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and gave to her husband Adam, and he ate as well. Instead of worshiping God, they desire to become like God. And then you see that same impetus in the building of the Tower of Babel. Instead of building for the, the name of the Lord, it says there that they built the tower for their own name. And again, you see that in the New Testament. That although humanity knows God... They neither glorify God nor give him thanks. In fact, Paul says that they exchange the truth of God for a lie and they worship created things rather than the creator who is forever blessed. And so this is the problem of humanity. God has made all things for his own glory, but humanity has fallen away, has rebelled against him, and has pursued their own glory. But God is not content with that. God's design is to bring this whole creation again back into a way so that it would redound to his praise, so that it would give him the honor that he is worthy of receiving. And since the fall of of this creation came through the sin of humanity, the restoration of creation is going to come through the restoration of humanity. And that's why the great goal of the incarnation is to bring many sons to glory. To take sinners who live for themselves or for some other God to transform them, to change them so that they would live for God's praise and glory. That's the great design that God has. So how is God going to bring many sons to glory? Well, the answer to that question is centered in his own son, Jesus Christ. It is through the Son of God that the sons of men are brought to glory. This is what we read there in verse 10, that it was fitting that God, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And the founder of their salvation is Jesus Christ. God isn't going to take individuals from this earth one by one and lead them to heaven. He's going to take a group of people, a mass of believers, and he's going to give them a leader, and it's that leader who's going to take them to glory. Just think of the Old Testament. When the Israelites were on the west, on the east side of the river Jordan, about to cross into the promised land, 
They didn't go over one by one whenever they thought that it it would be a good time to go over. No, it was Joshua who led them over into the promised land. And this is the way that God is working. How are people going to be brought to glory, brought to heaven? Well, they're going to be brought there through a founder, through a captain, through someone who's going to represent them and lead them. And this is what God is saying, that the leader of the people of God, the one who's going to bring these sons to glory, is none other than his own son. Jesus is the founder of their salvation, the author says. And since the way to salvation leads through suffering and hardship and tribulation, so the founder, the one who leads them, must go through all of that as well. Imagine, children, that if... If heaven is on the other side of the jungle, then someone needs to go before you to clear the path, to cut down the trees, to make the way open for you. And this is what Jesus has come to do. He goes through suffering and then he rises and goes into heaven. And he does that not just for himself, but he does that for the whole train of people who are coming behind him. Jesus is the forerunner He's the founder, he's the captain, he's the trailblazer so that he suffers and through his suffering, we follow him into glory. Now, in order for the founder to be a sufferer, he must become a man. He must become like us in every way except without sin. And this is what the verses 11 through 14 in our passage are highlighting that Jesus, the Son of God, really does become like us in order to lead us. And so it talks about in verse 11 how the one who sanctifies, that's referring to Jesus, and those who are sanctified, referring to Christians, all have one source or all come from one place. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He's become a part of our family. Verse 12, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. That's from Psalm 22. Highlighting again the real humanity of Jesus that our founder and our sufferer is like us. Verse 13 again, I will put my trust in him. Speaking of Jesus, trusting God for the matter of his own salvation. And he joins us. We trust God as well. And then again in verse 13, A quote from Isaiah 8, Behold, I and the children God has given me. This is the Lord Jesus speaking. As he stands before his Father, he says, Here I am, and here are the children you have given me, the ones I'm responsible to bring to glory for you so that your design of the restoration of creation for your praise might be accomplished. And then we get to the nub of it in verse 14. Since therefore the children, who are the children? Those are the ones that God wishes to bring to glory. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of the Lord Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Our founder and our sufferer must be like us. And the Lord Jesus is like us. He who is God became man. Since we have flesh and blood, he took to himself flesh and blood. So that the body of the Lord Jesus Christ was a real body, just like our body, though 
It wasn't a sinful body that he had taken to himself. And he had a soul, a human soul, so that he was subject to grief and anguish and sorrow and sadness and burdens and pains. The Lord Jesus became like us in every way except without sin. And he became that way because the Father's design was to bring many sons to glory. Jesus, the Son of God, becomes a man in order to take us to heaven. And then it talks about what he has done as the God-man. That's in verse 14 and 15. So it talks about how Jesus shares in our humanity, becomes like us, taking flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So here it talks about how Christ is not only the instrument, the one through whom sons are brought to glory, but it talks about how Christ, as the instrument, can actually bring sons to glory. And I want to look at these last two verses under three D words. You can think of it as the three D gospel. So what does Jesus do? Well, first of all, he destroys the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. You remember how the devil shows up on the early pages of human history how he takes the form of a serpent and then he tempts Adam and Eve to sin, to disobey God, to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And and Satan has been the enemy of God and of God's people from eternity. You know, not, you know, from from the beginning of creation, as soon as he was created and he fell against, uh, fell from, from his former position of glory, he has been against God and against God's people and against everything good. And he's one of the reasons why we cannot be brought to glory. He's the one who detracted us from glory. He's the one who diverted us because of his temptation in the Garden of Eden. And so he must be destroyed. Not his person must be destroyed, but his power must be destroyed. Because it's his power that keeps us from being brought to glory. Do you remember how this was the first gospel promise in Genesis 3? That after Adam and Eve sinned, God said that one day someone would come who would crush the head of the serpent. That the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent and and through the crushing of his head, he would be destroyed. His power would be no more. So that God's people would no longer have to live under his tyranny and his destructive power. And so that's the first thing that Jesus does. He destroys the one who has the power of death. Then the second D in verse 15, he delivers all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This is the reality of humanity. That outside of Jesus Christ, we are slaves of sin and of Satan. And we are under his bondage. And we are spiritually dead. And we have an eternity of everlasting destruction awaiting us. That's the reality. And because of that reality, we fear death. That's what it says here. That we, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. 
Now, you might dispute this. You might think humanity doesn't fear death. There's this whole movement to to legitimize uh, assisted suicide, the taking of one's own life. If they really feared death, death, they wouldn't do that sort of thing. Well, perhaps you wouldn't think so, but humanity deludes itself. And if you could speak to an unbeliever, and if you could get to their heart of hearts, you would realize that they actually do fear death. That's why they engage in all sorts of frantic activity to to forget about the reality of of heaven and hell, of eternity, of judgment, of of the meaning and value and, and significance of their own human soul. They do fear death. That's why they try to avoid thinking about it or they try to distort it and and to make death seem like a friend that we welcome at our own time and in our own way. But those who know uh, God, those who have been worked in by the power of the Holy Spirit, those who have been chosen from before the foundation of the world, they realize that this is the real problem, that, that this is my dilemma. I'm in bondage because of my sin. I'm in bondage to Satan. And I fear death because death means judgment. And the great thing is that Jesus is the one who delivers all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So that in Jesus Christ there is no longer any condemnation. We're free. We're delivered. Satan is destroyed and we are set free. That's the wonderful thing about the gospel. That's what Christ has come to do, sharing our humanity in order to destroy the devil and to deliver his people. But there's another D I want to highlight. And that's the D that you find in verse 14. That Jesus shares in our flesh and blood that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver. So notice how it's the death of Jesus that destroys the devil and delivers God's people. It's the death of Jesus that destroys the devil and delivers God's people. Now, now how does that work? Well, think it through with me. It will, uh, it will repay your effort. What is Satan's power over us? Well, we know that Satan is not the absolute power in the world. He's just a creator created by God. Satan is Satan's God and under God's sovereign rule. So what is Satan's power over us? Well, Satan's power over us is the guilt of our sin. Think of it this way. When humanity sinned against God, God sentenced them to death. And he made Satan the jailer of those who were sentenced to death. That's his power. So the power of Satan over humanity is the guilt of human sin. That's the only place that Satan's power resides. So that if you can deal with human sin, if you can remove the guilt of human sin, then Satan no longer has power. And having no power, he cannot keep people in bondage. And so this is what the Lord Jesus does. Jesus takes upon himself the sins of his people. 
takes responsibility for them as if they were his own. So that Jesus becomes the guilty one. And then Jesus pays the penalty for that guilt. Remember the wages of sin is death. Jesus pays the penalty for the sins. He enters into death, a death that is not just a physical death, but a death that is under the wrath and curse of God. He takes the punishment of sin. And having taken the punishment of sin, then Satan loses his power. And having lost his power, Jesus can deliver his people who were imprisoned by Satan. Perhaps I can uh, illustrate it this way for the children, younger and older children. Imagine that one day your mother got a Lamborghini. And as she sits in it, her Formula, Formula One uh, driving spirit comes out. And she starts racing down Highway 3, passing everyone, weaving in and out of traffic, going like crazy. And then all of a sudden, the police show up. They pursue her. They can't catch her. So they lay spikes down the road. And finally, she's brought to a stop. She appears before the judge, and the judge sentences her to prison and gives her over to the prison guard and say, now you guard this woman and don't let her free because she has done a a massive infraction against my law. Now, the prison guard really has no power except that the judge has given the guard that power so that uh, it's only because she's guilty that she's in prison. And it's only because she's guilty that the guard has that power. Well, imagine that your father loves, well, I hope you don't have to imagine that. Your father loves your mother very much and uh, wants her to be free. Can't imagine her being in prison with all those sorts of characters. And so he goes to the judge and says, listen, I'll take my wife's punishment. I'll go into prison for her. And the judge says, sure, that sounds like a great idea. That's what grooms ought to do for their brides. And, and so uh, the judge then sentences your father to prison. And he goes to prison. He's now under the authority, the power of the judge. But your mother has been set free from that authority. Because... In your mother's case, because of your father's payment of the penalty, the, the judge or the, the guard has lost his power and your mother is able to go free. And that's what's happening here. That Jesus, by his death, has destroyed the power of Satan so that he no longer has any authority over the people of God. And then he sets God's people free. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The penalty has been paid. There's no judgment hanging over them. They have no longer any reason to fear death because they know that after death there's no judgment, but instead there's increased liberty and joy and happiness because after death they will be brought to glory through our Lord Jesus Christ, their elder brother. That's what the incarnation is all about. Why did the Son of God become man? In order to bring many sons to glory. That's why he shared in our humanity. That's why he took our flesh and blood. And the wonderful thing is that this morning we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is this wonderful picture of the incarnation. Why do we have bread and wine? 
It's not just because that's what they ate, but it represents the body and blood of Christ. It represents that our Redeemer actually became man, that he took our flesh and blood, that he shared our humanity, that he became like us in every way, yet he was without sin. And we don't just celebrate the incarnation of the Lord Jesus, his coming to earth. We know that he came to earth in order to die and by his death bring deliverance and destruction to Satan and deliverance to us. And the Lord's Supper reminds us of that. This is a celebration, not of Jesus' resurrection. It's a celebration of Jesus' death because by his death, he has done such wonderful things for us in destroying our enemy and delivering us from his power. And so we can come to the Lord's table rejoicing in our freedom in Jesus Christ and celebrating what the Savior has done for hell-deserving sinners for those who are unworthy of the least of his mercies. It's common, not only in America, where you've probably heard it from, but in other countries of the world, that when someone is executed or someone who is on death row, ready to be executed, he gets his choice of the last meal. And so he eats the meal, and then he's executed for his crimes. Well, this is not that kind of meal. Those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ are not on death row. It's not a meal before our condemnation. It's a meal because our condemnation has been removed. And so we eat this meal, not with foreboding thoughts of what might happen the next day. We eat this meal with joy, anticipating that one day we will be brought to glory as the sons of God. And we'll not be eating this meal with just ourselves around this table, but we'll be eating this meal in heaven with the Lord Jesus in his glorified humanity, in his flesh and blood, standing amongst us, sitting with us. And all the people of God, all the sons from every tribe and nation and language under heaven gathered together in this massive feast, this celebration of the marriage feast of the Lamb. So so come, all you who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who rest in his grace, who know that your salvation depends not on what you have done, but on what he has done by his incarnation and by his death at Calvary. Come to the Lord's table and celebrate the good news of our redemption through the death of the Son of God, our Savior. Let us pray together. Our gracious and glorious God, it is a good thing for us to meditate on the coming into this world of our Lord Jesus, of his taking to himself our humanity, becoming like us in every way, yet without sin. It is a wonderful thing to think that he has done that for us and for our salvation, that he came from glory as your son, in order to bring your sons to glory. And we pray that you would bless us, that we would delight in our Savior, that you would open our minds, that we would have a greater grasp of his redemption, and that we would live for his honor and praise with joy, anticipating the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen. Well, let us uh, sing together hymn number 300, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. I chose this particularly for the last stanza, Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king. Hymn number 300, and let's stand to sing.
Let us pray together.